0: Well, let me encourage you, if you have your copy of God's word, if you want to grab a pew Bible, we're going to be in that passage today, John 15, starting in verse 18, and we will have lots of verses on the screen, so you can look up there, but sometimes I find that looking in my own Bible is helpful, because then I get used to where it is and, and see it. You can use a digital Bible if you feel so inclined, but I don't know, there's something about the paper that, that is just really cool. As you're turning there, I need to ask you a question. Have you ever had a teacher or a professor give you a syllabus that made you moan? And, and, you know, one of those syllabuses, syllabi, where the assignments and the projects that you would be going through were so immense that you just thought, oh, my goodness, there is no way that I can get through this. When Danielle and I were in high school, one of our favorite teachers happened to be a Bible teacher. He also taught um, mechanical drawing, and he was a coach. He was my baseball coach and her basketball coach, and volleyball, I think. But he was a very high, he was a great teacher, but he expected a lot from us. And this one year, he gave us a syllabus that essentially said, we're going to memorize four chapters of Scripture. We're going to memorize Psalm 139, every single verse, we're going, to saw Matthew, we're going to memorize Matthew 5, every single verse. We're going to memorize Philippians chapter two, every single verse, and James chapter one, every single verse. If you, you know it was 129 verses altogether. We had roughly eight months to memorize all of these things. It was going to be one per quarter. And then on top of that, he said, "We're going to be reading and studying J. I. Packer's. Seminal work, knowing God. And if you've ever read Packer, you know he's a British guy. So British guys speak differently than American guys. And their writing is very... And it was a daunting task. And then in addition to that, there were quizzes and tests and papers and all the like. And we were just like, will we ever get through this year? And yet, our initial woes were unfounded. We pressed through and got it all accomplished. And I wished I still had some of those verses in my active memory, the way that Jim has so many passages of scripture in his active memory. But we made it through. And even though it seemed daunting at the beginning, we were able to get through. And on the other side, there was a reward that was more than just good grades. But I bring that up because of what we are studying today here in the book of John. You see, we are right on the heels of Jesus telling his disciples again, you are to love God one another. And as he continues his farewell discourse, or we've been talking about it, his last will and testament, he does so in this chapter by, in these verses, by setting some expectations. It's almost like he's laying out the syllabus. He's saying, disciples, here's what you're going to go through. Expect this, get ready for this. The test is coming. Be on your guard. And so as we look at this, we're gonna see four things that Jesus calls us to expect. So if you wanna take notes, you can follow along there. You can fill in blanks or doodle or however you'd like to do this. But the first thing that Jesus tells his disciples to expect is hatred because of him. Hatred because of Jesus. Now in the politically charged environment in which we live. There are lots of people who are harping on hatred and fear-mongering. They're using inflammatory language to pit one political party against another political party, and they're using threats and causing people fear and all sorts of things like that, and that is not what Jesus is getting at. He's not talking politics. He's talking about hatred that we will receive because of him. You see, it's not our political views or our moral convictions. He is referring to what happens because of him. Look in verse 18. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In the midweek, I wrote that little note, and I encourage you to kind of look and analyze, well, what is Jesus doing here? And what he does is he makes six if-then statements. If this is true, then this will be true also. If this, then this. If this, then this. And he uses that as a means of helping us understand that we're kind of not alone in this. And this is the first of those. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You see, he's helping us get used to the fact that the hatred, the rejection, and ultimately persecution that they, and I think us, will receive from the world is not because of who we are. Notice he says they will, that we will be hated because they hated him. We saw this very early on in John chapter one verse eleven. John writes, "He, meaning Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him; they rejected him right from the outset." But he also communicates to us that they persecuted him or they will. So we're gonna be hated because they persecuted him. They're gonna persecute us. Woo, yay. But thirdly, we will be hated because we've been called out of the world. Look at what it says in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It says, no, now we're aliens in the world in which we've grown up. I don't think anyone likes to be hated, but there's a measure of comfort and confidence that we can have knowing that the hatred that we receive is not based on political party because there are good and godly Christians who vote on both sides of the aisle. It's not based on personality. It's not based on power. But it's because we are aligned with Jesus. And I think this is something we really need to understand, that we really need to grasp, because ultimately, it's not about you and me. It's all about Him. It's not about us, it's about Him. Ultimately, this hatred comes from the fact that those who hate us don't truly know God. Look at verse 21 of chapter 15. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And part of the reason for this hatred is that when Jesus came into the world, he spoke in such a way, he did miracles, he did, showed signs, did all these things in such a way that revealed the dirtiness, the sinfulness of humanity, the fallenness of humanity. In fact, in verses 22 to 24, Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, Hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. See, the beauty of Jesus' words and his works stand in such contrast to the world around us that all humanity stands condemned. We are all helpless. And so I think some of that hatred from the world stems from the fact that no one likes to be needy. We all like to be self-sufficient. We all think we're pretty cool. And yet we have, when we come to Jesus Christ, when we come to him, we recognize that, wow, he is holy and just and gracious. And man, I am not. No one likes to be called sinful dirty, and yet we all have to admit that we are. John chapter 3, verses 18 to 19 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and the people Loved darkness rather than light. Oh, darkness can be so appealing sometimes. It's mysterious. It's secret. And yet Jesus exposes that darkness in us. In his sovereignty, God God has called us out of our sinful place, out of the muck and mire of the world into a glorious relationship with him. And friend, if you are defensive about your sinful condition, if, if you hearing that you are sinful is just causing you pain, causing you to stir up with anger, then let me encourage you to take a deep breath. Set that aside for a moment and truly consider the holiness of God and who you are. Stop looking in the mirror because we all look pretty good in a mirror. But when we look at Jesus... Face to face, when we see him, as we see him in the pages of scripture, we realize, wow, I am sinful. But we are not without hope. John chapter one reminds us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Beloved, I hope that if we experience hatred from the world, it's not seen as a badge of honor. It's not seen as, hey, look, they're they're persecuting me. My rights are being violated. No. I hope that we see the hatred we may receive as a means of sorrow about the condition of the world around us. Wednesday night when we were studying Psalm 119, we got to this verse, verse 136, which says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Do we have that kind of feeling, that kind of emotion, compassion for those who are far from God? Jesus called us to turn the other cheek when assaulted and not to fight back. He called us to show love to our enemies, not to retaliate with equal hatred. And so Jesus, first of all, tells us to expect hatred. Yay! On account of him. But he also goes on to communicate that we can also expect help from the Holy Spirit. And we see that in John 15:26 to 27. You see, this is the third time now that Jesus has introduced the Holy Spirit to His disciples. And here he helps us to see that the, the, the help we receive from the Holy Spirit is in the form of a witness that He provides along with us. Look at what he says in 26 and 7. It says "But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. That word uh, helper," that in, in Greek it's the word paraclete, not parakeet, paraclete, not a bird. It's, it's a helper. And really what this means is like an advocate or a counsel, almost like legal counsel. And I want you to notice a couple things about this counselor, this helper that's being sent from God. You see, he's sent by Jesus. He's sent by Jesus from the Father. And I think the idea here is that he's sent from the presence of God, from the very throne room of God, the Spirit is sent out. And as he comes, he is known as the Spirit of truth because he speaks and reveals truth. Not any truth. Our world, our society loves to have my truth and your truth and his truth and her truth and their truth. But he speaks God's truth. But also he proceeds not only from the presence of the Father, from the Father himself. And it seems like this is referring to the fact that he's coming from within the Father. In fact, that word that is translated spirit is also the word breath. So when we have the Holy Spirit working in our lives, it is the very breath of God that is moving and working. But notice that the Spirit testifies. He bears witness about Jesus to the world. And we've seen this before, that it is God who initiates our salvation. John chapter three, verse twenty-seven, it says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. The Spirit's witness precedes, it happens before our witness. But just as an attorney might stand and make arguments in a court of law on behalf of a client before the client does. Have you ever noticed that in all those legal shows, right? The client typically doesn't stand up and say, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Normally, it's the, the attorney who's coming up and he's going to present the framework. He's going to talk about why the client is either guilty or innocent or or he's going to advocate it. He's helping the judge or the jury frame this. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. And we're going to see this a little bit more next week. But he's going before, helping those around us to understand that there is, that God is who he says he is. Bruce Milne quotes a gentleman by the name of Leslie Newbegin, And he notes the importance and supremacy and even the priority of the testimony of the Spirit. He says, This leadership of the Spirit needs to be underlined. The Spirit is not the church's auxiliary. The Spirit is not some extra, oh, yeah, we, we worship God, we worship Jesus. Oh, and then there's the Holy Spirit on the side. No, the Spirit is not the church's auxiliary. The promise made here is not to a church which is powerful and successful in a worldly sense. It is made to a church which shares the tribulation and humiliation of Jesus. The tribulation which arises from faithfulness to the truth in a world which is dominated by the lie. The promise is that exactly in this tribulation and humiliation, the mighty spirit of God will bear his own witness to the crucified Jesus as Lord and giver of life. So as we testify about the work of Jesus, the salvation he provided, we can do so in confidence knowing that the spirit of truth has already proclaimed something to the world around us. So we get to expect hatred, but we are reassured that we have a helper in the Holy Spirit as a witness. But thirdly, Jesus helps us see that we should expect hazards, the risk of falling away. And it almost goes without saying that anything worth doing has risks. Anything that happens, I don't know how many times I've had to fill out papers and sign waiving my rights to sue somebody over something should something happen to Zoe. Zoe. I think there were, must have been 10 sets of papers that we signed just to get her into Poolsville High School. They don't want to take risks. No, I'm just kidding. But Jesus tells us there are risks. Caution. Watch out. And look at what he says in chapter 16, verse 1. He said, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. So again, like a professor or teacher who clues us into a big project at the end of the term, Jesus prepares us for the big test and he qualifies what failure entails. He goes on to say in verses two and three, they will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the father or me. See, here's here's what we have to recognize is that facing persecution is not failure. Even death is not failure. Apostasy is failure. Falling away, giving up, stumbling, denying Christ. That, I think, is what he's talking about here. And it's as as though we feel like we can't stand up under the pressure of it all and we simply give up. You see, it's one thing to be tested and it's another thing to turn away as a result. Jesus tells his followers this in advance in order to strengthen their resolve and prepare them for what may come. In his book, Evangelism is Exiles, which we have a, a copy or two out in the book nook, the author, Elliot Clark, shares a story that um, he encountered, that their family encountered on the mission field. And he tells it like this. I'll read uh, just what he, he wrote. He said, One afternoon as my wife was working in the kitchen, I heard a sudden and sharp gasp. Then without, without hesitation, she cried out for me to come. And I immediately hurried to her side, assuming that she was hurt. But there from our kitchen's window, I found her staring to the opposite hill, between our home and the village, I followed her sightline to the silhouette of our 11-year-old son. Standing on a mound of dirt more than 100 yards away, across from him was a group of boys, a village troop we both easily recognized. A gang known by the kids in our neighborhood as the rough uncles. And as we squinted into the distance, our eyes locked onto the boy closest to our son. And from his body language, we could sense that this was a confrontation. And in the village village boy's hand was a large rock about the size of a football. And we both watched in stunned silence as he cocked his arm and raised the stone in anger over our son. And I froze. But before we could muster any semblance of a response, the situation was somehow diffused. The boy lowered the rock, and our son came hurrying back to the house, his face mixed with concern, shame, and uncertainty. And as soon as he walked in the door, we embraced him and asked him what happened. And he told us the rough uncles had come upon him without warning, and the group knew that he was a foreigner, foreigner and thus presumed that he was a Christian, And they asked if he believed Jesus is God's son who died on the cross. And when our son answered in the affirmative, the boys were incensed and threatened him with stoning. My wife, who by this time was almost beside herself, then asked, so what did you do? To which he responded, I told him I wasn't afraid of him. This is an 11-year-old boy. I wasn't afraid of him. I told him that they could kill me, but that wouldn't matter because I would just end up in heaven. Oh, may we stand firm like this 11-year-old boy did when we are faced with that extreme hazard. Expect the hazard that comes with persecution and prepare yourself. But there's one final expectation that Jesus gives us here And that is that we should expect heaven's plan to prevail. All of this potential hatred and persecution is not unnoticed by God. In fact, it was anticipated long before Jesus walked on the earth. In fact, Jesus quotes from Psalm 69:4. Which says, when he says in John chapter fifteen verse twenty five, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That phrase, "They hated me without a cause," was written hundreds of years ahead of time, notifying folks that hey, hatred would be there. The Messiah would not be liked by everyone. In addition to reaching back in order to anticipate the present, Jesus, um, in the present, projects into the future the very same things. He's telling them, you need to expect these things. In John chapter 16, verse 4, he says, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You see, nothing will happen to Jesus' followers in the future outside of God's plan. No amount of persecution, no amount of hatred or death can thwart the plan of God. God anticipates it. God accounts for it. He is glorified through it. God's plan will prevail in spite of it. The Apostle Paul, I think, helps us understand this. Another way when he says in Romans 8, 28 to 30, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we wanna just stop right there and think, oh, God's got our back. It's gonna be nice and easy and hunky-dory and woo-hoo, just me and Jesus. But when we would consider the, what Jesus is communicating here, we realize there's a richness and there's a depth to what Paul is talking about So Jesus tells us that we should expect hatred. We should expect help. We should expect the hazards and we should expect the success of heaven's plan. And maybe you're getting to the end of this and thinking, Joel, this is an awfully depressing sermon. Why in the world would this be helpful? It seems like a lot of pain. Is it worth it? But. Our brothers and sisters in the book of Acts, chapter 5, when they were faced with persecution, they responded this way. It says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The hatred we may receive is truly because people don't know or understand God. You see, his ways are foreign to them. His precepts are foolish to them. His salvation is unnecessary to them. However, when we face the challenges before us, others will see our conviction and some will glorify God as a result and some will come to know him as Savior and others may simply just persist, thinking that in harming us, they're harming God. A few weeks back, Ermal and I were in North Carolina at a conference. One of the speakers was talking, he touched on this idea of persecution a bit, and he told a story about a pastor in a part of Africa who was in a a nation that was largely controlled by Muslims. He didn't say the nation. I don't have any idea what that is, but the pastor was arrested and bound, and his family was arrested, and they were all presented together. And the pastor was called to recant his faith, and he said... If you don't recant your faith, your family will lose their lives. And so they stood before this pastor, his oldest son, because in their culture, they were going by priority. The oldest son is the heir. He's the rightful one. And they said, sir, will you recant your faith? And he said, no. And they took his oldest son's life. Then they took his newborn baby boy, they held him up, barely weeks old. And he said, sir, will you recount your faith? His life is in our hands. He said, I will not recount my faith. I will not. And they took his life. And they took. They stood before him, his daughter, and said the same thing and the same result happened. She lost her life. And then his wife stood before him. And she, he's, they, the, his accusers told him, if you don't deny your faith, we will take your wife's life. And she said, honey, don't give in. Don't give in. And then he responded to her, I'll see you in a few minutes. And he said, I will not recant my faith. So now that his whole family is dead, His accusers stand before him and said, Basically, what do you have to live for? There's nothing left for you here. And he replied, You've taken everybody, and they are where I want to be. Jesus Christ is my Lord. I will stand firm in this. And they took his life, and he was reunited in glory with his family. Beloved, we may not ever have to face that kind of persecution that this brother and his family, I hope we don't. But we must be willing to do so. Jesus gave up everything for us. He gave up the glories of heaven so that we might be in a right relationship with him. Will we willingly stand firm before him? Jesus told us to expect it, And we also get to expect the joyful response of our Savior when we remain steadfast to the end. And he says, as he did in Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little and I will set you over much and enter into the joy of your master. The syllabus before us may seem daunting, but the eternal outcome will be worth it.